If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. So welcome to this holy week that we are now celebrating here at Grace. Today is Palm Sunday. And on this Palm Sunday, we are going to be tackling the very important topic of suffering. Suffering. A topic that I think is incredibly relevant for us all because we are all sufferers. There's not a person in this room who has not suffered in one way or another. This is part of what it means to be human. This is common to the human condition to suffer. And this is trying for us because most of us struggle with suffering. Most of us don't know how to suffer well. And we have all sorts of hard and difficult expectations when it comes to suffering, namely that we shouldn't experience suffering in this life. Well, as important and as relevant of a topic uh, as suffering is for us, we do not primarily this morning want to consider our own suffering. We will consider that suffering for a bit, but primarily this morning, we want to consider the sufferings of Christ. So this morning on this Palm Sunday, we're going to consider primarily that our glorious King and our mighty Savior who entered into Jerusalem to cries of Hosanna, his identity and his mission were fundamentally misunderstood and he therefore suffered greatly. This is what we've been singing about so far this morning, right? So in Christ alone, We sing that that in Christ alone is found our salvation, yet Jesus, as he came to this earth, was scorned by the very ones he came to save and thus suffered. From the song Jerusalem, we see Jesus and we see him in various aspects of his ministry and his life and his death and we see him on the hill scorned and mocked. We see him frail and lonely holding up the cross, living a life of suffering experiencing great suffering. And and that song, Jerusalem, has been really important to me this week as I've considered this topic. Over and over again, it calls us to a very specific thing, to see him, to see Jesus, and to see him in his suffering. And really, that is our aim this morning to see Jesus, to fix our eyes on the thing that we are inclined not to fix our eyes on. If you think about those who suffer, you think about those people who are suffering, suffering obviously, uh, a derelict, a homeless person on the sidewalk, our tendency is to avert our eyes and not look upon this suffering. We don't, we don't like watching suffering on TV or in commercials. We avert our eyes today We want to see Jesus and we want to fix our eyes on him and his suffering. Why? 
because he is worthy of that sort of devotion, that sort of prolonged gaze, that sort of worship even. Jesus' passion and his love are worth us fixing our gaze on him and seeing him as he lived the life that he lived in our place and as he died the death on the cross that he did in our place. And I think as we do that, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, then we will then be better equipped, better enabled to be a people who suffer well, who understand suffering at a different level with a uniquely Christian mind. And so this morning, we're gonna go to the word and we're gonna see three points from the word. First, straight from the words of scripture, Jesus must suffer many things. We're going to focus in, in particular, on the many things. What are the many things Jesus must suffer? We, we surely can't cover them all, but we want to hone in on some of the many things that Jesus had to suffer. Second, we're going to see that there was a movement of this suffering. There was a culmination of Jesus' suffering. Jesus had to suffer many things, and he did so at a particular place, on the cross. So here we want to see the extent and the depth of Jesus' love and his passion and his suffering upon the cross. And then finally, we want to think theologically, frame our time in the word theologically and see how Jesus' sufferings affect our sufferings in this life. And so in this final point, we're going to see that while Jesus must suffer many things, we too must suffer many things, and we must suffer many things in Christ. So let's pray that the Lord would help us as we seek to do this. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that your spirit would take your word and put it on our hearts and cause us to see Christ, to behold him and to be moved to humble adoration and worship, dependence on Christ, finding him to be our joy and our hope and our satisfaction. We pray that you would do this today and that we would be better for it, and that you would receive worship for how you interact with us here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew 16, verse 21. We're going to read this, and once again, what we want to see here is that Jesus must suffer many things. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So here we have our orienting verse for this week. Over the course of this week, we are going to consider that Jesus suffered many things, that he had to die and raise again. This morning, We want to focus in our attention on the first couple of phrases. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. This verse provides some of the irony of Palm Sunday for us. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. And while the crowds would cry, Hosanna, Lord save us. And and, and implied in that is is an expectancy that it would happen now. Lord save us now. 
Rather than saving them then and there, Jesus would prolong this salvation by suffering many things. Jesus, as he tended to do, reversed the expectations of Israel, not only by coming humbly and meekly and mildly on a donkey, but coming for the purpose of suffering so that he could ensure that one day all suffering would be done away with for those who are in Christ. And so Jesus went to Jerusalem to suffer. This was no accident. It was necessary. Part of God's plan of redemption. The thing about suffering, though, is that we tend to reduce Jesus' sufferings to his sufferings upon the cross. Jesus certainly suffered upon the cross, but there are different ideas being presented to us here in Matthew 16, and they separate out these ideas. Jesus must die, and he must be raised again, but before this, Jesus must suffer many things. Louis Burkhoff, as a theologian, or was a theologian, said that we are inclined to think that his final agonies constituted the whole of his sufferings, yet his whole life was a life of suffering. His whole life was a life of suffering. And so from his first cry to final breath was a life of suffering. Jesus didn't only suffer upon the cross, though he did suffer there. And while his suffering was amplified in the final week of his ministry, as one author put it, the way of obedience was for him at the same time a way of suffering. And so as a way of getting a small glimpse of Jesus' majesty and passion and as a way to see Jesus, I want to present to you four ways that we see Jesus suffering many things in the final week of his life. Four ways, uh, not the only four ways, but four ways that were important and impactful for me this week as I was considering Jesus' passion from the word. So four things, four ways that Jesus suffered many things. First, Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus was despised and rejected. In other words, he was, as in Christ alone says, scorned by the ones he came to save. The eternal word of God, the truth of God, the one who exegetes God, who narrates God, who explains God, was called a liar. You see this in so many places. Matthew 26, 3 through 4 shows that Jesus was despised and rejected. The, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. He was despised and rejected. Matthew 27 Verses 15 and 17 and 21 through 23, mashing these up. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? 
And they all said, they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But then they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Matthew 27 again. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they, gar- they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness was scorned by the ones he came to save. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Not only was Jesus despised and rejected, but he was betrayed and abandoned. Betrayed and abandoned. We see this theme over and over again in the last week of Jesus' life, and we see it so clearly in Judas. Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him, his friend, the Lord of all. He doesn't stop there. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, but he was abandoned by his friends in the garden of Gethsemane. At his time of need, his disciples, his friends slept abandoned him, left him alone. Peter, the rock, denied Jesus three times. The disciples scattered, leaving Jesus utterly alone. Some people will summarize the mission of Jesus by saying that he came to redeem a holy people to a holy communion with God forever. And here we see that the one who establishes communion, fellowship with God, be left alone by the ones that, who were supposed to love him the most, who he cared for, who he walked with, who he invested in, whom he loved. Jesus knows what it means to be stabbed in the back. Jesus knows what it means to be alone and to suffer. Jesus also suffered the soul-crushing dread of the cross. Jesus was on death row and he knew he was on death row and he bore that weight in his soul. We could see this in Gethsemane, Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled and then he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch with me and going a little further he fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it be possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will but as you will 
every once in a while, not even very often, but every once in a while, I will have to have a hard conversation with somebody. Something happened, there's something going on and I need to enter into some sort of conflict or some sort of trial and, and say some hard things. And the prospect of being slightly uncomfortable in a hard conversation makes me physically sick. I feel like I have the flu when I need to have a hard conversation with somebody. And, and I'm not alone in that. Statistics show that that's pretty common amongst mankind. We do not like conflict and we don't even like the possibility of future conflict. It works itself out in our psychology so that something happens inside of us and it works it out so that we feel physically ill over the prospect of being uncomfortable. The cross, the cross looms over the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what is coming and it's not mere uncomfort and his soul is agonized at the prospect, not just of physical death, but of the anguish of bearing the sins of the world in his body. Jesus knows true anguish in his soul. And finally, Jesus suffered extraordinarily in ordinary ways. Extraordinarily in ordinary ways. I'm going to take you to a, an odd passage to demonstrate this, but I think it makes sense. Matthew 21, 18 through 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. This passage struck me in the chest this week. It's an odd passage. What exactly is going on here is, is difficult to understand. It's not the most obvious thing, but at least one thing is clear. Jesus is hungry. And there's some level of frustration that his hunger is not being met by this fig tree. This is what I would call ordinary suffering. Ordinary suffering, something that most of us experience regularly. The idea of being hungry and not being able to satisfy that hunger for some normal reason. The thing that's remarkable about this, though, is that even though this is an ordinary form of suffering, being hungry and not having that need met, Jesus experiences it in an extraordinary way. Why? Because Jesus isn't like us. We have to remember that though man, Jesus is God. He is the high king of heaven. He is the one through whom all things were created and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so when Jesus experiences things like simple hunger, we have to remember that he experiences this hunger as the one who created bread. And now the bread of heaven comes to this earth and gives himself so that we would never hunger again. Jesus became hungry for us, though it is in his nature that he is self-sufficient. 
And this should inform and amplify the various forms of suffering that we've already discussed. Jesus wasn't just despised and rejected as we are despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected although God, although being the very truth of God. Jesus wasn't just abandoned and betrayed. Jesus is the one who existed for all eternity in perfect fellowship within the Trinity. That's the Jesus who was left alone by his friends to suffer at the cross. Jesus didn't just suffer the anguish of the cross, but he did so according to his humility as the God who became man. He didn't have to experience the garden. He didn't have to experience the various forms of suffering that he did, but he did so in love on our behalf for us. In just three chapters, the things that we're reading all happen in three chapters. Jesus truly suffered many things. Imagine if we opened up to the other 25 chapters in Matthew. Jesus suffered. The Son of God suffered in our place. He suffered many things in his life, many things in the final week of his life. And while his life was a life of suffering, his suffering had a chief expression, a culmination, the cross. And so second thing that we want to see this morning is that Jesus must suffer many things. And he must suffer many things at the cross. So we have to reckon with this fact that Jesus' entire life was a life of suffering. We need to keep that in mind. But the cross is the culmination of Jesus' suffering. At the cross, Jesus must suffer many things. And so we see this being moved towards in the narrative in Matthew. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. From that time is an important phrase. It marks a shift in the narrative in Matthew. At this point, Jesus is now turning his face and setting his face upon the cross. Jesus is saying there's something different now about my earthly ministry. His ministry is shifting from showing signs and wonders and visible expressions of the kingdom of God and all this teaching. And now it is turning towards his suffering. And not just a general suffering, not a general form of suffering, like the kind that we've been addressing, but the cross specifically. If we keep going in Matthew, we see this idea repeated twice more where Jesus predicts his death. Matthew 16, 22 and 23, and Matthew 20, 17 through 19, both say that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And there, Jesus will be delivered over to the chief priests to be crucified and to die and to be raised again. There's no more general talk of Jesus' suffering. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to the cross. This is where all of scripture has been moving towards. This is where scripture is culminating. Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Not only that uh, do we see this in Matthew, but Mark and Luke have the exact same formula. Both start with Jesus must suffer many things, going to Jerusalem to die and then be raised again. Then they both continue and say, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be delivered over, to be crucified. There's an obvious trajectory here towards the cross. 
And all of this suffering that Jesus has experienced in his life from his incarnation to the week of his, week of his death is going to lead to the Passio Magno, Jesus' great suffering, his atoning and self-sacrificing death upon the cross. There's so many things that we could say about the cross. And we're going to say many things about the cross on Friday. But this morning, I want us to consider the unique suffering of the cross. How did Jesus suffer many things on the cross? I think we see at least two things very clearly that Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus suffered in body and soul on the cross. Jesus suffered body and soul on the cross. At the cross, Jesus suffered in his body. We glimpsed this earlier in Gethsemane where, where his soul was was worried and crushed, and so it worked itself out in being physical. Jesus suffered uniquely in his flesh. It's interesting, throughout history of the church, we've tended to emphasize or prioritize one aspect of Jesus' suffering. We either emphasize Jesus' body, bodily suffering, or his suffering in the soul. For whatever reason, I've tended to fall into that latter category. I've tended to minimize Jesus' suffering in his body. I, I honestly don't think I could give you a good reason why I've done that. I, I thought about it a lot this week and the only thing that I can come up with is that I don't like looking upon the suffering of Jesus. That's too much for my mind to take. I am that person who changes the channel when I see something uncomfortable. I don't like gazing at Jesus' suffering. And yet, the Bible makes it plain that Jesus did in fact suffer mightily in his body. The reality is that the only son of God, the unique son of God, the only truly innocent and perfect human being to have ever lived in this life was tortured to death. Jesus, the high king of heaven, the Lord of all, the one who will judge, died a criminal's death. This sort of death was so heinous that Rome wouldn't even uh, allow it to occur to its citizens. It was used as a form of psychological warfare to deter crime from happening within the kingdom. Jesus suffered in a way that we cannot comprehend physically. This was no mere physical suffering. This was no mere physical death. This was as bad as it gets. Let us never forget or minimize that our Lord, our friend, our brother, our king suffered in his body. He bled for us. He was pierced for us. He was crushed for us, Jesus suffered to death for us. But Jesus did not only suffer in his body on the cross. The body and the soul were affected by sin. And so Jesus suffered body and soul as well on our behalf. And in his soul did Jesus suffer. Some of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed is, is the earliest Christian creed that we're aware of. And 
in this creed are certain key Christian doctrines that are laid out. Uh, what is the uh, Christianity in its simplest form? That's what this creed seeks to answer. And it, it's been recited in different forms for over 2,000 years now, including in this church. It starts like this. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I think that's something that we could all fist pump over, right? We believe that, that, that God is the Father and he's the maker of heaven and earth. So we're all on the same page. Amen. Let's keep going. And in, and in Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Once again, that's, that's good. We can believe that. Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. I assume that most of us agree with that. We would give our amen to that. But then we get this line. He descended into hell. What? Where was that in Matthew or Luke or John? I, I don't recall the, the verse, he descended into hell. We might track with this whole thing until that last line. What in the world is being described here that Jesus descended into hell? Well, unfortunately for us, the writers of the Apostles' Creed didn't give a reader's version with it. So we don't know exactly what they meant by that line. And so over the past 2,000 years, people have argued and debated and tried to figure out what exactly that means. Did that literally happen? When did it happen? What's the nature of that? It's a strange line. So why do I bring it up? I bring this up because of what John Calvin said about this line. His interpretation understanding of this line is my interpretation and understanding of this line. He said that this line, that Jesus descended into hell, should be understood metaphorically as happening at the cross. This refers to what Jesus endured at the cross. At the cross, when Jesus took our place and endured in his body the death that we deserved, Jesus truly truly experienced the pangs of hell in his body and in his soul. In his soul, Jesus experienced hell for us on the cross. There was a very real sense in his humanity that he was forsaken by God. And so no wonder that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in his soul, he truly suffered on our behalf. Worth noting that although Jesus suffered body and soul, he did cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in humble and dependent prayer to the Father? See him. See Jesus, who from his first cry to final breath suffered, lived a life of suffering, a life of suffering that we can't comprehend, who endured in his body and his soul throughout his life and upon the cross, intense, overwhelming suffering. See him. Jesus suffered. He truly suffered in extraordinary ways. He knows suffering. He's a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. And he now calls us to suffer with him final thing we want to see from the word is that we now must suffer many things in Christ. 
Look at verses 24 and 26. Matthew 16, 24 through through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus suffered. And he suffered in his life and his death from the moment he took his first breath to his final cry. He suffered. And now we want to see how that suffering speaks to our suffering. How does this make sense of the suffering that we experience in this life? Verses 24 through 26 here, they tell us that we are to take up our cross and we are to follow Jesus. But they do not tell us to take up our cross and follow Jesus in some general or abstract way, in some bumper sticker sort of way. No, there is a context. All of this is informed and controlled by verse 21. Jesus must suffer many things. He must suffer many things. And now we too must walk in the footsteps of our master to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus' life was an obedient life of suffering, full of suffering. And as Christ followers, we are called to share in that suffering. This is an idea that's laced throughout the New Testament. Two places quickly. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. 1 Peter 4, 13 puts it this way, But rejoice, Rejoice, be full of joy insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. These verses here reveal this idea that in Christ we share in his sufferings. This is getting at an idea called union with Christ. Union with Christ. As preachers uh, over this Holy Week, this morning, Friday and Sunday, we're, we're dealing with the internal document or a, uh, a subtitle to this idea that we are saved in Christ alone. We're saved in Christ alone and we are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection and his suffering. We're united with Christ. We want union with Christ to frame and make sense of Jesus' passion. And so... What is union with Christ? One of my favorite theologians puts it this way. Union with Christ is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and salvation. Union with Christ means that Christ is in us. And we are in Christ. There is a special and intimate union, a special relationship that we share. We are uniquely linked so that all the riches of Christ and Christ himself flows to us. The Bible gives us image after image that is to help explain this idea 
The idea between the mystical and mysterious one flesh union between a husband and a wife is meant to reflect, it's meant meant to image this mystic union between Christ and his bride, the church, us. The idea of the church as a body and Christ the head shows a vital union where one cannot exist without the other and the blessings of Christ flow to the body. John 15 pictures Christ as a vine and the church as the branches growing from the vine, finding life and vitality and health in the vine, not existing on their own, but flowing from the vine, flowing from Christ. And so there's this this connection, this vital link that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. John Calvin says about our union with Christ, it is the highest degree of importance, the highest degree of importance, higher than anything else. Why? Because it's through our union with Christ that all of the riches and the blessings of Christ flow to us. Through our union with Christ, salvation flows to us. Adoption, justification, redemption flows to us. Through union with Christ, sanctification flows to us. God is nurturing us. He is making us alive in him and making us more and more like Christ as we dwell in Christ. And so we have to recognize that this isn't mere theology talk. This isn't something that we merely learn in a classroom and merely store in our heads, but this is something that has to get to our hearts. Why? Because there are certain gospel realities linked with the idea of union with Christ. If we are in Christ, then that means that we currently, in an indicative way, in a true way, we are in Christ, then we share in his death then we share in his resurrection and we share in his sufferings. The Bible says that we as Christians are to share in the sufferings of Christ. We're to suffer the many things in Christ. And I believe that if we get this, if we truly get this in our head and our hearts, then we will be a people who will have a sure and steadfast anchor that holds when the storms of suffering come our way. What do I mean? We all suffer. We all suffer. It's part of what it means to be human. And if everything we've said so far is true, then Christians uniquely suffer. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. It's a gospel reality that we will suffer. Yet, we often suffer in a way that causes us to lose heart. But the Bible seems to say that suffering isn't meant to be a thing that destroys or breaks. It never denies that it's terrible. It gives us incredible license to lament and to cry out how terrible suffering is. Nevertheless, the purpose of suffering in God's economy is not to break us or to ruin us. Rather, suffering is meant to be a blessing to us. A blessing or as one author puts it, suffering is the nail that drives us into the heart of God. Rankin Wilburn wrote a great short book on union with Christ. And in that book, he talks about life in Christ as being like a sailboat. He says that in life with Christ, we're gonna navigate the waters, navigate the seas, but occasionally, no matter what, it's going to happen, a storm is going to come. And anyone who's ever been on the water when a storm comes knows that that is a terrifying reality, knows that that is legitimately terrible. But 
The thing about a storm when you're in a sailboat is nothing moves you like a storm. It's possible for you to go to bed at night and a storm to come and you to wake up and to be hundreds of miles away. Suffering, and that's what we see here. That's what we see uh, how suffering acts in the Christian life because Christ is in us. Our suffering is something that can move us along from point A to point B. What is point A and point B in this whole idea? Point A and point B is communion with Christ and further communion with Christ. Suffering can and does move us faster to our goal than anything else as long as our goal is communion with Christ. As one author says, suffering is the shortcut to the destination of communion with Christ. How is that possible? How is that possible? It's possible because of what union with Christ entails, what it boils down to. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Christ is in us. If we get this, this is a sure and a steadfast anchor that will hold in the storm, the, the storms of suffering. What does it mean? It means that we are united to the one who must suffer many things. It means that we're united to the one who was crushed on the cross. And if we're united with Jesus in these things, if we share a vital, intimate union with Christ in these things, then how can we not also expect to suffer in this life? There have been times in my marriage where either Raylin or me, we suffer. And whenever that happens, the other one naturally suffers. If I'm suffering, Raylin suffers. And if she suffers, I suffer. That's part of what it means for us to have a one flesh union of marriage. That, that sort of link necessitates that we share in one another's sufferings to some degree. And to not do that would be crazy. That would indicate something unhealthy about our relationship. That's what we're seeing here because Christ is in us. Our suffering becomes normalized. It becomes okay to an extent because it is expected. It's not to say that it's not terrible, but it's something that we know is coming. Suffering is no longer out of control and due to chaos and the planet spinning about. No, This is due to the sovereign will of God bringing about situations that would cause us to know him and enjoy him and love him more. Uh, God is seeking to build us in us a communion with Christ, moving us from point A to point B through the storms of suffering. The Bible even says that when, when we suffer, Christ's spirit uniquely rests upon us. And so when we get union with Christ, we get that we have a great high priest who has gone before us, who shares his experiences with us and who understands our suffering and prepares us for the storms of suffering. We get to know they're coming. This becomes a natural part of living out this Christian life. And so that's the first anchor, but there's a second anchor. Christ is in us, but we are in Christ. It's not just that Christ is in us. We are in Christ. That means that we are safe. It means that we're safe. No matter what suffering comes our way, we deal with it from a place of perfect safety, hidden in Christ. If we are in Christ, our eternal destinies will never be affected by suffering. 
Suffering is not God pouring out his condemnation upon us, and suffering is not an evidence that we have been somehow ripped from the hands of God. Union with Christ, the idea that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ can give us an eternal perspective on suffering that says as terrible as suffering in this life is, as legitimately horrible as it is, as much as it grieves us, as much as it causes our bones to ache, it is not the end. It is merely one of the means to the end of communion with Christ. Horatio Spafford understood this when he wrote, it is well with my soul. If you're familiar with this story, Spafford's four daughters tragically drowned in the sea And as God would have it, Spafford later ended up traveling roughly the same route and and about the same place where his, his daughters died. Spafford was moved and he wrote this song, It Is Well With My Soul. And It Is Well With My Soul is not waxing and waning about suffering generally or how it's gonna, everything's gonna be okay in this life. No, it says things like this. It is well with my soul. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. What was the sure and steadfast anchor that held in Spafford's suffering? Was it that everything was going to be okay in this life? Was it that suffering would somehow abate and not come to him? No. It was that he was so hid in Christ that he was in Christ, that his eternal destiny was secure. And that everyone who lived in Christ, their eternal destiny is secure. Death is not the end for those of us who are in Christ. So the worst of suffering is merely a means to the end. Jesus suffered. And he suffered in his life and in his death. He suffered from first cry to final breath. And because he suffered from first cry to final breath, he now enables us and empowers us to be people who give our entire lives to God from first cry to final breath, to live in Christ and even then to suffer in Christ. We have the unique privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Christ is in us, so his path will be our path. And we are in Christ, so we're perfectly safe to walk that path. And as we get this, as we grasp this, we'll not only have anchors that will hold us in the storms of suffering, but we will be empowered to boldly step into situations that might lead us to greater suffering. Because Jesus suffered, we can be hospitable in a way that might cost something from us. Because Jesus suffered, we could risk our reputations, our livelihood for preaching Christ in our workplaces, in our schools. We can make weighty financial decisions because Jesus suffered in our place. We can fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions as Paul sought to do. Why? How? Because Jesus suffered. Because he suffered totally. He suffered in our place and we're united to him in his death and in his resurrection and in his suffering. Let's pray. Father.
we thank you for your son. And we thank you that from his first cry to final breath, he suffered in our place. He suffered in his life. He suffered to his death. And Lord, we thank you now that we too can suffer in Christ, that we have that privilege and that duty. Lord, we pray that as we walk that path that Christ has walked, that you would supply our every need. That because Christ is in us, that we would be able to hide in Christ and hope in Christ and seek the power of the Spirit as we walk this road. Lord, help us. Help us to go from here reflecting on Christ who bled and who died and who lived for us and help us to go living in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.